Welcome, welcome, welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. And each week, we talk about what's going on in the world. And as we talk about that, I let you know my thing is this, about what's going on in the world. Again, I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. Stay tuned, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in this week. This week is December, weekend in December the 12th, 2021. Again, I'm your host, Troy Sampson, for the My Thing Is This podcast. Peace and blessings to everybody. Good evening. Uh, I want to start out by saying something today about, today is Sunday, of course, a lot of things going on today, mainly was a lot of things going on besides, you know, going to church and doing those things. Um, But it was a football day today, and boy, oh boy, (laughs) did the uh, Dallas-Washington game Really had people on pins and needles at the end. Uh, Dallas pretty much dominated the game all day. Washington just couldn't get right. Uh, I'm not sure if Taylor Heineke is the answer to that quarterback question, Um, but they couldn't do anything. And in the second half, they kind of came to life a little bit and made it very interesting at the end. Um, Got the game close, got an interception, picked six off Dak. I don't know what Dak was thinking. And then had the ball back with opportunity. When they scored their pick six, they field goal was missed. So the game was 20, I think it was 27-20. And then they got the ball back from Dallas again with like a minute or so left. And at that point, uh, I think it was uh, Kyle Allen had replaced Taylor Heineke. And they just couldn't get it going. Um, He did make some plays. And one play he made was a long pass down the sideline by my man Carter. I think it's DeAndre Carter, I think his name it is, number one. He he it was in his hands. And you know, as they say, if it touches your hands, you gotta catch it. And if he catches that ball, it's a I think it's a totally different ball game. Of course they had opportunities after that where he fumbled the ball. Instead of throwing it away, he kind of fumbled it. His knee didn't touch down and then instead of him trying to get rid of it with his arm moving forward as he went to cock it back and start to go for it, the ball flipped backwards. So they ruled that as a fumble, and pretty much it was a wrap after that. But it was an exciting time. Uh, I had one of my old Coast Guard buddies. I served in the United States Coast Guard for many, if many of you don't know. Um, I did 10 years in the Coast Guard, and one of 
my Coast Guard buddies, a brother named Mark Houston. Uh, he retired uh, from the Coast Guard after 20 years in the service. And he got in touch with me this week because he's a big-time Dallas fan. He lives down in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Um, he was actually the president, I guess, the president CEO of Houston Contracting. Uh, he's a licensed contractor down there, does home improvement, stuff like that. So if in the Charlotte area, having to be in the Charlotte area looking for a good home improvement contractor, look up uh, Mark Houston and Houston Contracting. Um, that's my man. But him and his daughter, Kayla, uh, she's a high school senior down there. And they came up for the weekend, stayed with us uh, last night and got up this morning, went to the game, and now they are visiting – visiting an aunt, her aunt in Virginia, Kayla's aunt in Virginia, and then they'll head on out back home, um, back down in North Carolina uh, after visiting the aunt. But they were here this weekend, so I got a chance to catch up with one of my uh, old Coast Guard buddies, and we had a chance to do a FaceTime with another Coast Guard buddy of mine, brother named Bill Thomas. We call him Dollar Bill. Dollar Bill hails from the Detroit, Michigan area, and Dollar Bill ain't changed not one bit. He's uh, also retired Coast Guard. And that brother ain't changed that one bit. Still smooth. You know, we used to have a little happy hour crew when we were all stationed together up in New York on Governor's Island. And, you know, there was a fee associated with being with the crew. You know, uh, you had to contribute toward when those were my days of drinking, contribute money to get the bottle for happy hour every Friday. So, you know, we had a a little crew, me, Mark, and Dollar Bill. And then there was another brother, uh, Big Dave, we call him Dog. He was also in the crew. So that was fun times, man. I got a chance to kick it with Mark this weekend and his daughter, and we reminisced on old times and caught up, and that was a blessing. But uh, they came up for that Dallas Redskins game or Dallas-Washington football team game and uh, kicked it with us for the weekend and went to the game. And it was an exciting game for those Dallas and Washington football teams fans today. Washington fell short, you know, uh, Shout out to my man, the six man Kevin Williams. I know he's a big time Washington football team fan. He got on Instagram and put his two cents in, and you know people were leaving early uh, from that game. And uh, you you know you never leave early in a rivalry game. You stay until the end because you never know what may happen. And Washington made a strong push and almost got it to overtime, but they came up short in the last minute. But anyway, enough about that. Uh, I want to jump into about three topics today um, that I want to discuss. Um, the juicy or the 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 the, the Jesse the Jesse Smollett or as, as Dave Chappelle calls him, Juicy Smollett, uh trial that concluded where he was found guilty on five felony accounts of disorderly conduct for making false reports, which is a class four felony. And up to three years in prison and a $25,000 fine. And I think each count, that's what each count. So he could get up three years for each count. They haven't made a decision. I don't know if they want to make an example of him. I don't know what they're going to do about that. But just the whole situation with that. When that thing first broke, as you all recall, I was very, very skeptical. I know myself and a bunch of other people are very skeptical, especially people on social media. Because at the time, he got mugged, supposedly, right? It was like, and for the people live in Chi-Town in the Great Lakes area, you know, Michigan, Chicago, the Great Lakes area in the wintertime, especially in Chicago, they said them winters are brutal. And it was like minus, 
umpteen degrees outside, you know, where they had, you know, cold uh, warnings and stuff like that, you know, get the homeless off the street, you know, don't stay outside for long, don't work outside for long. This cat is out at 2 in the morning going to a subway. Now, what subway in Chicago is open at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning when it's minus umpteen degrees outside? So that was the first thing. Those are the first two things that caught my attention. Subway opened that late. I mean, I know Chicago's a major city, kind of like New York, probably a city that never sleeps, but you're going to sub, you were you a Hollywood actor. You got you got some cheese in your in your, in your pocket. You know, you you played a big role. You was getting some cheese playing that role on Empire. And of course, you know, you did some other stuff too. You couldn't DoorDash it. Well, I don't know if DoorDash was around at that time, but you couldn't have nobody bring you something. Call somebody and say, hey, I need a sandwich. Pick me up a sandwich and send somebody out for it. That was suspicious too. And then you out at that time of morning getting mugged. Who is out? In umpteen degree weather that's not homeless just looking for the mug somebody doesn't make any sense it doesn't add up so you know he he got convicted on five counts of disorderly conduct for making false reports and now they're going to wait to see what i guess the sentencing is going to be um and i'm not sure if they're going to make an example out of him or i'm not sure if the the, the scales of justice is going to be, you know, just that, the scales of justice, as we know what that means in this country, that it always doesn't tip fairly, depending on who you are, your background, you know, what, you know, what your money status is, what your sex is, what your race is, you know, those, those, those scales of justice can be tipped when those things are considered. And then also Don Lemon was started catching heat behind this whole thing because apparently Don Lemon must have got some sort of insider information and related to Mr. Smollier um, that the Chicago PD was coming after him and so people went online you know calling for his head one writer I think a guy named Tim something I think it might have been Tim went online and tweeted that Don Lemon should be fired and all that and all that stuff and so you know Don Lemon I guess you know, I guess you use some sort of back channel resources or got some sort of back word or word on the table that Chicago PD was coming after him. So he ended up telling, telling uh, Juicy Smollett that they were coming, be prepared. And so people are coming for Dom Lemon now. You know, they already went after Chris Cuomo for, you know, using his resources and stuff like that to try to protect his brother or look after his brother or whatever the case may be. And, that, you know, that's a situation that's very difficult. You know, um, for folks to deal with, um, that's your brother. You know, you, you know, they have a great relationship, obviously, and he loves his brother. And um, I don't know too many people out there that have a position to help or in a position that a lot of us don't have privy to. You know, media sources, all that kind of stuff, who wouldn't help their brother out or sister out in a situation like that. You know, I know if I was famous and had access to stuff that, you know, the general public doesn't have access to and one of my brothers got in trouble, I'm going to use those resources to find out the truth and find out what's going on and do what I can to do with those resources to help my brother. You know, um, 
even if you know, even if it's a situation where you know my brother did something that is completely wrong, I'll use those resources to find out the truth. You know, whether he did something completely wrong, you know, or not. Um, you know, I'm not saying I, you know, would condone any malicious, bad behavior by any of my brothers, anybody in my family, any of my friends for that matter. Um, but initially I would try to find out what the truth is, you know. Um, and then if the truth is, you know, my brother actually did what he said he's going to do, then I'll pull my back channel strings to get him the representation that he needs to represent him, you know, in court. Not to get him, you know, not to tip the scales, because, I mean, I, I believe in this wrong is wrong. And even for family, wrong is wrong. Um, if you did something wrong, um, consciously did something wrong, then there's consequences for that. And you have to live with those consequences. So we all make choices, and we have to live with the choices that we make. You know, if you are committing a crime and you knowingly commit a crime, you're my brother, but, you know, the chips will fall where they may with you committing that crime. So, but if it's something that you're wrongly accused of, uh, didn't have anything to do with, and so on and so forth, definitely, you know, I'll be there to to help you out, do what I can do. But if you knowingly, willingly committed a crime, then you're still my brother. I love you with all my heart. But you're gonna have to take you're gonna have to take the L on this one because you did wrong. And so, you know, um, again, if I got the resources in the pool, I you know say, hey man, check out this attorney. He's a good attorney. Maybe he can help you out. Whatever the case may be. And I'll support you in any way I can, but I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to condone your behavior um, or anything like that. And I know it may sound like, well, you're going to get in the best lawyer to try to get him off. Well, you know, anybody's going to try to get the best lawyer to get them off of anything. So, you know, that, that's the subject for debate, but I'm not going to go down that road too much more. I'm going to keep this, keep this train moving. Um, the other topic I want to talk about and well, let's circle back to, 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 to just to juice, to juicy smolier for a second. And my thing is this, you know, this is the my thing is this podcast. So my thing is this: as a celebrity, why would you put yourself out there like that, consciously make a decision like that to fake getting mugged, especially getting mugged and using your gender? or what your sexual preference is, and the fact that you're black, as something to cover it up. That these two men out in umpteen degree weather happen to jump a gay black male and treat him as a gay black male with homophobic slurs and uh, racist epithets and such and such like that. My thing is this, what in your mind caused you to get to a point where you had to do that when you felt the need to fake that what's going on in your head where you even had to come up with the notion to say okay I got something going on whatever it is you got going on I got it I'm, I'm gonna do something to fake this what that's the root and of course you know he's sticking to his guns his lawyers have come out and say we're gonna appeal this and we're going to see it through and we're going to get justice when we appeal and so on and so forth. But my thing is this. They got evidence that you talked to these dudes. You hung out with these dudes. You got high with these dudes before they did what they did. And these dudes came out and said, yeah, you hired us to do it. So my thing is this. What was your motive from the jump? What were you thinking? What were you trying to accomplish from the jump? 
was it something when you would get ready to get let go from Empire and you were trying to drum up something to, I guess, stop that from happening? Is there something else going on in your life that you're looking for attention with this? What, what I mean, is your sister, Journey, outshining you in the spotlight? I, I'm not sure what is there something there? And, you know, I don't know, you know, Juicy Spoilier, as Dave Chappelle calls him, we don't know each other from a can of paint. He doesn't know I exist. I mean, I know he exists because he's a celebrity, but he doesn't have any idea who I am. But I'm just, I'm just, these are just questions that I have. What was going on in your life for you to go to this extreme measures to do something like that? Because, again, my thing is this. There's something going on with you, either mentally, physically, or something going on in your circle that said, I'm going to fake getting attacked at 2 a.m. in minus 15-degree weather in Chicago trying to go to Subway. Now, I don't begrudge anybody for trying to go to Subway, but to go out at 3 a.m. to go to Subway in minus 15-degree weather, that's that's uh, my thing is this. That sounds real shady. But anyway, man, moving on along again, keeping this train moving. So the Dante Wright situation has come up again. You know, the, the the officer, female officer that was charged has been charged with shooting him. So there's a debate about that. You know, everything came up. Like I think a trial came up or something like that. My thing is this: How, as a law enforcement officer who is trained on both your firearm and your taser, how did you mistake? your firearm for your taser. Number one, most officers are trained to have the firearm on one side and the taser on the other side, and they're trained to know the difference, to know which side each one is on. That's the first thing. The second thing is experts are saying that there is more weight in a firearm than it is in a taser, especially if a firearm is fully loaded. So now you got a, a Glock or a nine millimeter firearm, what they call it, in, I think they call it in uh, law enforcement, sidearm. Law enforcement military call it sidearm. So you've got the weight of the gun itself. And then when you load the clip, which could be nine, I think nine to 12 rounds in the clip with bullets, that makes the gun even heavier. Right, so how do you mistake that? Because the average gun, they say the average gun, I think, fully loaded weighs about, I want to, they say, thirty six to forty ounces, and a taser weighs about eight ounces. So either you're gonna choose your weapon, you're gonna, <laughs> either you're gonna choose the right weapon. And the other thing too, here's the other thing, and this is the stuff I'm reading from different articles and, 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 and opinions of law enforcement people who have been doing this for a while. One guy said, this is this is him saying this, right? This is a, a, a former law enforcement official saying this. He said, either weapon you choose, right? You have to bring it to your line of sight to use it. And one is bright yellow and the other is either silver or black. So, yes, you can tell the difference. So, not only did he say you can tell the difference in the weight, but you can also tell the difference that when you pull that firearm up to your line of sight, the taser is yellow. 
You got to get the line of sight. You can't see that yellow in your line of sight. You can't see this yellow. You can't feel in your hand that it's not the handgun. That's crazy to me. That's crazy. That is very crazy. Wow. That's interesting. So, you know, there's got to be, and I'm, and I'm going to circle back to the Peace Act. I think it was Lacey Clay, the former, I think, state representative senator out of Missouri who got, out of St. Louis, actually, who got beat by one of the Ferguson activists, a lady, I forgot her name, I can't, her name slips from my mind right now, but she beat Lacey Clay out for his seat. Uh, Lacey Clay's family has been in that seat for a long time and she being an activist out of uh, Ferguson was a main activist in Ferguson. She ran and beat him. But before he, you know, got beat out of office, Lacey Clay and another representative, a senator named Ro Connor, put together what they call the Peace Act. And so from my understanding and reading and hearing them talk about the Peace Act, the Peace Act is a process or the Peace Act is a law they put in place that requires all law enforcement officers to exercise the non-lethal to lethal process. So here's what that means. So if you, from what I understand, so if you are a law enforcement officer, you have your standard uniform and then you have your belt and you have your, your, your weapons, so to speak, your policing weapons firearm, taser, baton, pepper spray, you know, those four things. The Peace Act is sitting, was, I mean, of course, during the Trump administration, the Peace Act just sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, just rotting, just sitting there all with, a hundred, with a, what, 200, 300 other bills that had been put before them by Democrats. They're just sitting there because they don't want to pass them. But from my understanding, what the Peace Act is supposed to do the Peace Act is going to now re- would, would require law enforcement officers that when they arrive on the scene of an incident and they have to use force, that they have to follow a hierarchy of force to use, which meaning the firearm is the last line of the lethal force, the, is the last resort. So what happens is, so let's just say Dante Wright, for instance. Use Dante Wright as an example, since we're talking about Dante Wright. Uh, rest in peace, blessings, and prayers for his family. And I pray that he gets justice, as him and his family gets justice in this situation with this officer. So they approach Dante Wright, right? They're trying to arrest him. Well, if they're going to use any sort of force to arrest him, you have to go through the process, and that process is... You have to either use your baton. Baton don't work. And I don't know the specific order except for the last one, which is the firearm, which is a last resort, supposedly under the Peace Act. But you're supposed to use all your non-lethal weapons that you have first before you get to the gun. So in Dante's case, it should have been when it's tried to get him out the car, whatever case may he started resisting or or he didn't want to get out the car, whatever, whatever it was. 
It should have been the baton first. Okay, if baton doesn't get him to comply, then you go pepper spray. Pepper spray doesn't get him to comply, right? He just shrugs off the pepper spray. Don't know too many people that have done that or do that. Can just shrug off pepper spray. They're sprayed directly in their face. And then the last one is the taser. Or should I say the third one is the taser. So you got baton, you got pepper spray, then you got taser. If none of those work, now it also depends on if Mr. Wright is a threat to the officer's life, right? But the way the Peace Act works is in most uh, most police situations where they have to use some sort of force, the handgun or the firearm, the police issue firearm is supposed to be the last resort. And with it being the last resort, I think there's stipulations with that, meaning the health and safety of the officers was in serious jeopardy. The health and safeties of civilians in a situation around that is in danger. And I could be misquoting that part from the law, from, from the Peace Act. But mainly, the lethal, the, the, the firearm or the sidearm is supposed to be the last resort. But like I said, there's stipulations with that. So my thing is this. Why didn't these officers, why are these officers carrying pepper spray, a baton, and a taser if they're just going to go straight to the gun? Or mistakenly in this case, go straight to the gun thinking it was a taser. That just boggles my mind. But the Peace Act, that's what the Peace Act is supposed to do. So the Peace Act was introduced by Ro Connor um, and Lacey Clay. And then the flip side of that was the qualified immunity. The, I think the removal of qualified immunity bill or something like that was introduced by Ayanna Presley and Justin Amash. And these all came up after that, that that crazy spring summer that we had where people were just getting killed left and right by police, people of color. And obviously, qualified immunity and the Peace Act had just been sitting on the Republicans' desk. Or should I say, well, I mean, not turn this into a political thing, Republicans versus Democrat, but it's sitting on a politician's desk, just sitting there not being pushed through. So, you know, it's just one of those things. Law enforcement needs to change the way they do traffic stops. They need to change the way they do a lot of things. Um, Because it's costing people's lives. I mean, just across the country, period. And I'm not saying every police jurisdiction has this going on, has a a high civilian fatality rate. Um, when they're interacting with police officers or law enforcement, but something needs to something needs to change to where lives are being saved. Now, there was a big push to get, you know, police forces with mental health uh, crisis teams on them. So, you know, when people talk about, well, we're going to defund the police, I talked to a couple officers um, that's been on the job for fifteen, twenty years or more, and we were talking about. I said, well, what is that? What does defund the police really mean? 
And they say, and one in particular said, and he's a federal police officer, he's Secret Service, as a matter of fact. He said, what that means is it's not going to affect the day-to-day operations of the police force. Meaning that if you decide that DCMPD, you need to take $12 million for their police budget, you know where they're going to pull that money from? This is what they told me. The first place they're going to pull it from is training. They're not going to pull it away from the day-to-day operation. They're definitely not going to pull it away from outfitting the the you know police with weapons and stuff like that. They said it's always, the first thing is always to go when the defund the police comes up is training. Well, I think training is a big part of doing police work, um, both instruction and on the job. Um, because I think it would minimize a lot of things that happen. But I also think there's, or should I say my thing is this, there should be a whole revamp of this, this, this whole process, period how you hire police officers, how you monitor the activities, how you discipline them when it comes time. Because Dante Wright's not coming back. Eric Garner's not coming back. Brown and Taylor's not coming back. Sandra Bland's not coming back. Trayvon Martin's not coming back. Walter Scott's not coming back. Tamir Rice is not coming back. Mr. Bell, Brother Bell's not coming back. Alton Sterling's not coming back. You, you see what I'm saying? These people are not coming. Philando Castile's not coming back. George Floyd is not coming back. And so the need my thing is this there needs to be a change in just how it's being done, period. And Instead of defunding the police, if you say we're going to defund the police, so MPD, we're going to take $12 million from you. Well, what you do with that $12 million, just my just my thing and my thing is this and my thing is this only. The views expressed by Troy Samson are just that, his views. Nobody else's views but mine. Um, what you can do with the 12, as they say, Metropolitan Police Department, they're going to pull $12 million as a defunding act for them. Right. Okay. Well, if they're gonna take cut training, which they shouldn't be allowed to, that's the thing. I think when you defund the, if you're gonna defund the police or take money from police forces, then you shouldn't allow them to decide where the money's coming from, because most of them, according to officers I talk to, first place the training is cut is the first place the the budget's cut is training. And that training, I think, is especially refresher training, is very important. So you try to find some other way that doesn't jeopardize police officer safety to take that money. But I say if you're going to take that money, take that $12 million and say, we're taking $12 million from you, and it's going to go to hire and train mental health professionals that are going to be on call, on duty, just like you guys are on call on duty, when there's a call for a mental health professional or a mental health situation. So when that call happens, there's keywords 
that should be in the system or with the dispatchers that say mental health issue that automatically triggers an alert to dispatch law enforcement or to dispatch mental health workers first or the first call, they'd be the first responders with police and law enforcement as their backup. So here's what that looks like. Let's just say Pete as an example. Pete's having his, uh, a mental health issue, a mental health crisis. Pete's mom and cousins, you know, because he's going off over Thanksgiving dinner. He didn't take his meds and he's having an episode, right? Because he's bipolar or he may be schizophrenic or he may be have something else going on and he may require medication and he hadn't taken his medication for a couple of days. So now his manic schizophrenia or bipolar is now manifested and it's now triggered. So now at Thanksgiving dinner, Pete is going off, getting out of control. So now mom calls 911. Mom says, can you send the police or can you send someone because my son Pete is having a mental health crisis or he's having a mental health breakdown. He's going off. He's, he's mental. Something's going on when his schizophrenia is kicking up, his bipolarism is kicking up. Right? And I think it's important for, because everything is always a two-way street. So let me just go back to that. Let me just back for, backpedal for a second and talk about the process and say, that it's a two-way street, right? So when mom calls, right, and Pete's going off, and mom knows it's a mental health issue, mom says, I need a mental health professional or send someone to get my son Pete. He's bipolar, he hasn't taken his medication, and he's having an episode, right? He's having an episode. I'm afraid he's going to hurt something. He's already broken some windows. You know, he's fighting with our relatives at Thanksgiving. Send somebody. So the key words is he's having a mental health crisis. He's bipolar. He didn't take his meds. Can you send somebody? 911 dispatcher says, 911, what's your emergency? Okay, thank you very much. What's your address, miss? Okay, so Pete is having a mental health issue. He's bipolar. He didn't take his medication. He's going off. We'll send some. We'll send a team right away. We'll send someone right away. What's your address, right? In the background, right? Now that nine one one dispatcher will then make a phone call, or do some sort of, I don't know, chat or instant message to the mental health crisis team that's a part of now MPD with the twelve million dollars, right? They're notified. They're giving the address. While they're doing that, they're also calling the radio to the local, to the nearest police unit in that district that's out in the field. And what they're going to say is, we've already dispatched mental health services. You're going to provide backup in case this thing gets bad. It's just as simple as that. Because on a 911 call, you got to be quick and efficient but you can still talk to the officers in the car while they're there or while they're on their way. You got that kind of time. Because between the time you say, hey, this is the address, you can't talk to them no more. So you should have time to say, hey, we've already dispatched a mental health crisis team. 
they're en route, right? And you want and you want to try to dispatch the mental health crisis team as quickly as possible. So, so when it's set up, they can arrive on the scene in a timely fashion, either right as police officers are or before police officers are, to now start and they will take the lead on the situation because they're trained mental health professionals, and they will use law enforcement as the last resort slash muscle, so to speak. So if Pete, if, if, if the mental health crisis team gets there and they can't use their tools and techniques to get Pete to calm down, then what happens is then you say, okay, this is what's going on with Pete. This is how we need to take him down. If Pete has no weapons, no guns, no knives, no weapons, just Pete, then law enforcement should go through the four layers of the Peace Act. Try to try to arrest Pete, right? Or try to get him calmed down. And typically when you have someone going off like that, you got to put him in some sort of constraint restraints, which is typically handcuffs. So you try to get Pete, Pete in the handcuffs. Okay, so that's so talking him to it ain't working. So now you go through your four layers of the Peace Act. So you're gonna use baton, pepper spray, taser. Right, that last one, which is the service revolver or sidearm, is a last resort, and that's the last resort only if Pete is now endangering, not the thought of in your in your own head as an officer, this dude might kill me. I gotta defend myself, but if he's actually attempting or using something to endanger or physically harm, fatally harm or maim a police officer or law or a mental health professional. That's the only time you should really use that lethal force. But you gotta go through all the other ones first, right? So that's what the peace actually, like that's what defunding the police should look like because my thing is this those things are things that can actually happen now I'm pretty sure there are people out there that have worked in law enforcement for 20, 30, 40 years whatever that may hear this podcast and hear this take on this and well say well it's not like that in the field Troy it happens too fast too fast too fast too fast too fast it's split second split second split second it's only split second in my opinion my thing is this it's only split second after you arrive on scene but while you're dispatched, there should be dialogue going back and forth between the dispatcher and the mental health crisis team and the dispatcher and the 911 law enforcement team that is being dispatched. Because you can't send mental health professionals in to a situation like that where their specialty is mental health only. And you can't leave them out there by themselves because someone could get hurt. So you have to have some sort of um, muscle behind them, which would be the law enforcement officers. But in that instance, the law enforcement officers will allow the mental health professionals to do their job, and they're observing at this point. So you're getting a full picture. You're not rolling up full board ready to go. You're allowing the mental health professionals to do their job, and as they're doing their job, you're assessing everything that's going on. You're looking to see if Pete has a weapon. You're looking to see uh, if, if Pete is, you know, on something or maybe on something like PCP or something like that that has 
that has been known to cause people to have superhuman strength. You're looking for those things to see if the mental health professionals are in true danger or in grave danger of Pete doing something fatal to them or to even you to a certain degree. So you're watching all that. You see what I'm saying? So my thing is this. There's a way that can be done, and my thing is this about defund the police. Defund the police and get mental health professionals in there. If you're going to take their money, and that's another, that's a different topic or a different conversation, is what happens, what really happens to that money? If you're going to take their money, if you're going to take $12 million out of MPD's $1.2 billion budget, then take that $12 million and hire mental health crisis professionals. And if you hire someone that's, that, that's a spe- that has a specialty in mental health crisis that also has a law enforcement background or can do law enforcement, that's a bonus because now you have someone that can talk talk to the person and understand what they're going through, but then at the same time, they're law enforcement. They can protect themselves at the same time too. So that's just my take. My thing is this on Dante Wright. Last but not least, I always try to plug something that's related to um, disabilities, special education, whatnot. So what I'm going to talk about now is I, I found an article in Education Week. Matter of fact, it was sent to me by my vice chair, Sarah Whalen, and my community outreach manager, Pam Talley, who serve on the Special Education City Advisory Council with me for Prince George's County. So they sent me this article um, from Ed Week. It's called, uh, I think, yeah, Ed Week, Education Week, that it, it says, to keep teachers from quitting, address these five key issues. Shout out to Marina Whiteleather, who wrote this article on December 7th. And she talked about um, teacher burnout and those issues that come up that prevent teachers from being able to stay on the job, stopping them from quitting. And so I just had the article up on my phone. Let me pull it again. Real quick, let's see here. Uh, bear with me while I look this up. As a matter of fact, hold on, let me do this. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you hit the like and subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by you, our listeners, and by the mighty man himself, God. Thank you for your support. And thank you, Lord, for making this possible. Now I'm back to the show. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. So I'm still trying to pull up that article. I had it actually on my phone, but Ed Week requires a, <laughs> they require a subscription after a certain amount of views. So I got to go pull it up on my computer right now. So um, bear with me for a second while I get that article. Yeah, here it is. Maybe it'll let me see it in full real time. All right, so, yeah, so here we go. All right, so she talks about stress, burnout, exhaustion, too little respect, and the whole pandemic that has had, how the pandemic has had uh, a dramatic effect on our educators um, 
in this country are school teachers, right? And so um, one of the things, and I'm going to talk about this too because a lot of people, a lot of articles that talk about teacher burnout and talk about teachers and stuff like that always say money is not an issue, it's not the main issue that teachers are leaving, right? But I kind of disagree, and I'll talk about that after I go into some of these points in the article. So in the article it says, here are the five common problems teachers say make them quit, make them want to quit. And I actually quote a couple of teachers in this article. So Kenny Houston says, uh, under poor management, well, first topic, one, the first thing is poor management. So Kenny Houston is quoted as saying, unreal expectations and poor management of the school can be, can be two problems. So he's saying poor management of the school. And typically with most schools, especially elementary, you know, kindergarten, elementary, junior high, high school, Management of the school is at the principal's feet, right? Um, Tiffany Michelle says, poor management, toxic school environment, no support for behavior issues, when teachers don't feel safe, and teacher burnout is real, I could go on. So one of the problems is poor management by the school, right? So if you have a school that has poor management, poor leadership at the top, and leadership at the management group at the school, you're going to have problems. And this is particularly, you know, in my wheelhouse in particular, because I'm a parent of a child that had an IEP that was in special education from first grade all the way until he graduated high school. And one of the things I kept seeing is, and I also keep hearing, and I still hear to this day complaints from parents, is the school's not responding to me. The school's not doing this. They're not implementing this IEP. They're not following the objectives. They're not, they're not doing this. The school, school, school's not doing this. And that was our case for a long time. And we ended up hiring an advocate. Shout out to Dr. Alicia James and Just Kids Education Services. Uh, check her out. She's a great advocate. She's very passionate about what she does. And she truly is one of those people that is not necessarily in it for the money, even though she, she has to get paid to do what she does, but the energy she brings is different, is not someone that's in it for the money. Because, you know, there are people that are in it for the money, and they give you a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of effort, and then there's people that are not in it for the money that I believe give you maximum or more effort, right? She's one of those people that gives you maximum or more effort. And so one of the things that, I found striking in our journey with my son Joshua was everything kept coming back to the school team, right? And so we used to beat on the special education department. You know, I used to go to CCAC meetings um, under the old um, leadership of the special education department of um, the late Mary, uh, Joan Rothgev. Joan Rothgev used to be superintendent or the director of special education when my son was pretty much from first grade through middle school and then right around the time he's ending middle school, she had retired and was replaced by Dr. Gwendolyn Mason. So it was Joan and Mary Bell. Mary Bell was like her second in charge. And so I used to go to CCAC meetings and just go after Mary and Mary and Joan 
about what's going on with my son at the school. And then one night, Liz Burley, who is an awesome transition specialist that was long time in this county school system, she's got you know children of her own that are adults now living with disabilities and special needs. And so she is no nonsense straight to the point. And so one night, she was talking to myself and another parent after the well, after our CCAG meeting, right? And she listened to me ranting and raving, ranting and raving, ranting and raving, this, that, and that. She said, Mr. Sampson. And I tell people this story all the time, so this is not anything that, you know, is a secret. So, you know, I tell people this story all the time. She said, Mr. Sampson, you know, your problem is you're focusing your attention in the wrong area. She said, Joan Rothkev and Mary Bell are part of the special education department for the county. They don't have hire and fire authority over the teachers in the school. She said, your problem is, it's not with, it should not be with them necessarily. She said, your problem should be with the principal because the principal is in charge of the teachers and administrators at that school, right? Here we are, poor management. The teacher is responsible for ensuring that those teachers, I mean, the principal is responsible for ensuring that those teachers are implementing all the students' IEPs and doing it the way they're supposed to be doing it. So she said, Joan and Mary run a department that is kind of like an oversight compliance department, but they don't have hire and fire authority over the teachers in their schools that doesn't, they don't do what they're supposed to do. So each school has a special education chair that's a part of the school that works for the principal. Then they have special education teachers, case managers, so on and so forth, right? And the school system, special education department, has what they call supervisors that cover schools. These are special educators that's been doing this for a long time, and they have a certain amount of schools that they cover, and they supervise and so on and so forth and provide leadership to. But those people, the director of special education, all the staff over there, they don't have the ability to hold the teachers accountable at a job level. I want to make that clear at the job level. So we all are accountable. So we got a, you got a job, you get evaluated by your boss. Your boss is going to tell you you're doing a great job or is going to tell you there's a lot of room for improvement and here's a plan for improvement. And then if you don't do that, if you don't accomplish the improvement, show improvement in your work, then they eventually let you go. That's the way it is in schools too. Or should I say the principal operates in that way from my understanding. If she's the one or he's the one doing evals and hiring, firing, or whatever you want to call it, of teachers under her school, under his or her schoolhouse. And so when she hit me with that, I was like, man, that's interesting. And so I share that with people all the time, you know, parents all the time. I said, you got to go at the principal. You have to go after the principal for this. The special education department They'll take it and they'll consult with the school and the director of special education is kind of appear to the boss of the principals, which is, a, is which is a superintendent that uh, by I think it's an associate superintendent by title that is in charge or is a supervisor or the manager of all the principals. So they're like colleagues on the same level. So the special education associate uh, director of special education will go to the, 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 the principal or super associate superintendent over the principals and say, hey, the principal at such and such school or this school 
is having a problem. IEPs aren't being implemented. You need to talk to the principal to get her staff to do everything they're supposed to be doing because we're getting beat up by the parents with these calls. Now, how that process works and how that happens, I don't know. And that's where the gaps are. So that, to me, is poor management. Right? So it's, it could be a toxic environment. There's unreal expectations put on teachers and administrators because it, uh, it, it, it's oftentimes shorter staff and shorter resources. And I'll get into that here shortly, too, about resources and staff and stuff like that. The other thing, number two, they say professional input is not taken seriously. So Steve, Steve Bodley says, of course, compensation is an important factor. Well, what drove me and many of my colleagues away from our local district and the jobs we love was the common disregard for our professional input. Our school district and district administration continue to exclude us from critical decisions while being completely oblivious to the conditions they created and the consequences of their actions. So what that means is you got probably former teachers and administrators that are sitting at the Department of Education offices for that school district. They're not in the classrooms, right? They're not even in the school buildings. They're in their own separate building, an administrative building for the school district. So now they start making decisions that affect these schools without their input. And that's what Steve Bolley's talking about. You make these decisions, you're cutting budgets or you're making changes in schools and you're not talking to us about it or we make suggestions and you're not listening to it. You're just operating off of what you think is best, not what is in reality would be best for the school. So now you got professional input is not being taken seriously. So if a teacher is telling the principal and the principal is telling the people over in the administration building that this is the reason why a lot of our students are acting out, or this is the reason why a lot of students aren't achieving, this is what we can do to make that work. So instead of listening to the principals and the teachers, right, they're going to say, well, we're just going to go with, uh, use an example, we're just going to go with Common Core, right? Common Core was a big issue that came up. Bill Gates was behind that. I have my thoughts on Common Core, but I digress. Common Core is a great thing to slice bread. So teachers start doing Common Core, or Common Core was stuffed on all these teachers without even consulting them to figure out what's the best way to reach our kids, what's the best way to teach our kids. That's just an example, right? The third example and this is the big one. This kind of contributes to why IEPs aren't being implemented and the handcuffing that happens and why teachers and a lot of processes aren't being done in both in general education and special education. Short staff Staffing shortages. This is from Yvette James. He says, schools are short staff and teachers are running on empty. The demands are high and not enough staff to meet the requirements. So you know what that means, right? And I heard this the other day um, <laughs> at one school or in the school district, how one teacher had said to someone or said to a parent that is, for, that is, you know, a case manager for IEPs and 504s. This person has 100 IEPs to manage. 100. So she's got 100 students as her caseload. That is 90 too many. That's 90 too many. 90 too many. My thing is this. That's just 90 too many. That's too many. 
10, hey, she should be, he or she should be able to manage 10. But 100? How does that person ever get any work done? How does that person ever check to see if IEPs are being implemented? How does that person even check to make sure changes are being made? When do they find time to make the changes? So these are often issues, right? And these are often the issues that center around why IEPs aren't being implemented because you don't have enough staff to dedicate to making sure this is done, this is done, this is done. Speech is being missed. OT is being missed. All those things are being missed, right? Because you don't have enough staff, right? Man, my thing is this. There's enough money in this country. And I'll, once again, I'll talk about this later to where no school district, no school or any school district should be short staff. Matter of fact, there's enough money in this country to where they should be overstaffed. All right. Another one is lack of respect. This is Allison Guerin. She says, it's the micromanaging and lack of professional respect for me. I'm an educated professional, and I want to be treated and compensated as such. Ah, ah. Now, in this article, they start out by saying money is not the most important thing, right? But somehow, some way, right, money is still, we need money to survive in this society, in this economy, man. Inflation, things are going up. You gotta, you know, you gotta pay people accordingly. Times have changed. Student and teaching have changed. You can't continue to pay people based on some broken model, some model from 1976. She says she is an educated professional and want to be treated and compensated as such. So she doesn't want to be micromanaged, right? There's need to be a level of professional respect. Right? I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Allison worked her butt off to get the credentials that she's gotten. And she just wants a little respect. And it's funny how she says in her in her quote, she says micromanaging. Right? How do you micromanage someone or teachers and you still got problems in general ed and in special ed, special education? There's still challenges. But you're micromanaging teachers, right? Because to me, if you're micromanaging teachers, that means you're uncovering, you're micromanaging to make sure every stone is unturned in both general ed and both special ed education. Crazy. Another one from Kalia Smith, classroom management. But get this. So Allison Guerin says she wants respect because she's an educated professional. And that's your going to respect and that she should be respected and compensated for it. So Kalia Smith starts her quote out. Well, she was quoted and the start of her quote says on the classroom management says this. Compensation would absolutely help. 
but pay the most important thing. So two of the five things that were talked about had the word compensation in it. My thing is this, no matter what we do, in the world we live in now, everything is centered around money. Everything is centered around money. There's a dollar sign associated with everything. In the, in the global economy we live in now, because the global economy has, in my opinion, and my thing is this, is dictated that way. Has has pushed capitalism to the forefront, so there's a dollar for everything, all right. And so she says compensation would absolutely help. But I have always said I do this for the kids, but sadly this year the kids have been a huge part of the reason I consider leaving daily. I love them, and I know they have been through a lot. But I am so disheartened this year with the behavior issues and the conscious disruptions. I feel so lost. It is classroom management. Now, those who are seasoned individuals, those individuals 40 and above, right? That went to school when, you know, I call the mom or daddy from work because you're cutting up in school. Man, trouble, trouble, trouble. In some instances, some people's parents got called out to the school and discipline was doled out in the classroom right in front of their classmates. I know when I went to school, didn't nobody want to have their mother or father have to take off work Had to take off work. That they trying to make money to, to, to keep a roof over your head and food in your belly, clothes on your back, vehicles working, all those things that become that, that come with being an adult, right? And having responsibility, they got to take off work to come out there to deal with your foolishness in the classroom. Back in the day when I was growing up, did nobody want to deal with that? Because you were going to get embarrassed in front of all your, especially if your parent came to the classroom, which in a lot of instances when I was growing up, a lot of the administrators would allow the parents to go to the classroom because they knew that the parents were going to check that child. But now it's a different ball game. It's a different ball game. I, I think also think that COVID and the information overload society that we live in now has contributed to it. I also think that we have parenting has changed over the years. It has definitely changed uh, in a way in which it talks about, or should I say in a way in which how, it, how parenting is done, how discipline is done, how respect is done, how all those things are done, right? It's changed. And kids are, I've heard stories, I'll put it to you like this, I've heard stories from other adults that I know and I work with or used to work with that had had children that had gotten into it with somebody else's child and they had to go to the school for it and have told me <laughs> that the other child's parents showed up to the school while y'all picking on my child 
My child ain't capable of doing that. And the child was the one that started the fight with yours. The child is the one that's a class clown. The child is the one that's a class bully in school. But you come to school and think everybody's against your child. Your child ain't do no wrong. So when your child, so when you stand up for a wrong child in front of other adults, because you think you're protecting your child, that's emboldening your child to do it even more. Because you're telling them as an adult that what they did by starting that fight or being a bully, that what they did is okay. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to keep on doing it. They're going to keep on doing it until that other child finally gets the courage enough to chin check that child and let that child know no more. But that's, 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 I think that's part of the problem is it's contributing to class poor, you know, the classroom management. You know, these teachers are expected to be psychologists, childcare workers, and all these other things to children and then teach a curriculum at the same time. Schools become like a babysitter for a lot of parents. A lot of parents out here too busy running the street to be parents. A lot of parents are too busy out here grinding, being entrepreneurs, sacrificing that that precious time they have with their children because they feel as though, well, I'm providing all this for you. You got an Xbox, you got two, you got an Xbox, PS5, Xbox One, a PS5, a 60-inch flat screen television in your bedroom, iPad, lap, MacBook, iPhone, hoverboard. You got all that stuff. I provide for you. But you provide all that stuff, but not providing the most important thing, which is love, guidance, and discipline. That's why classrooms are off the chain. I remember <laughs> years after I graduated high school, came to South Chester Vikings, shout out to CSD, class 86. I went back to visit and ran into my old AP history teacher, Ms. Shirley McWilliams, one of the best teachers in the school. Me and my boy Ronnie used to sit back in, in the back of her AP history class and read life magazines. We passed the class. We did well in the class, but we sat in the back, and she used to always pick on us for sitting in the back reading life magazines. <laughs> but I happened to see Ms. McWilliams one day. I said, Ms. McWilliams, you still at it? She said, Troy, honey. I don't know how much longer I can do this. She said, times have changed. She said, I wish I had you guys. I wish I had you and Ronnie and all the other kids that were here before. My job, I would stay here. I would teach forever if you guys were here. She said, but it's changed now. I said, well, what do you mean, Mr. Williams? She said, well, this past school year, I had a kid throw another kid through the glass in the back room. So in the back of Ms. McWilliams' classroom, was kind of like a little lounge area, right? And in most schools built back in the day, the windows were glass, but they had chicken wire inside of them, right? And what the chicken wire did was, if the glass was broken, right, the glass wouldn't shatter all over the place. The chicken wire would hold the glass in place. So those who have gone to an old elementary school, old high school, know what I'm talking about. You'll you'll recognize it. And I think they may still do it in some schools now. But you got glass, those big glass windows. And even on the little windows to the doors, there was chicken wire inside the glass. So you could just break the glass out completely. So what would happen is you would get little, you would get those little teeny 
chunks of glass because the glass was always thick and may fall on the floor. But the glass itself wouldn't just shatter completely out all over the place. And most of the time when you busted a window with chicken wire in it, you have to really bust the window out to get it completely open because the chicken wire is holding everything in place. So anyway, she said, I said, well, Mr. Williams, why why you want to give up to you? She said, I had a kid throw another kid through the glass. I said, what you mean through? I said, how you get through the glass? Because the glass got chicken wire in it. Didn't it stop him? She said, no. She said, they got the fight in that back room, Troy. Next thing you know, I looked up. There's a big old hole in the window through the chicken wire and everything where the kid threw the other kid through it. I said, no. She said, honey, when that happened, I said to myself, Shirley, honey, you got to go. Times have changed. Times have really changed. And so that goes back to this person's um, issue about class management. So let's recap real quick. The top five reasons, right, these teachers gave for wanting to, or most common, five most common problems that say they make them want to quit. Poor management. And that's typically at the principal and even at the board education level, right? Professional input not taken seriously. Staffing shortages. You know, people leaving because they don't want to put up with the BS. Lack of respect, right? Not being respected. You know, this one lady said, I'm an educated professional. I want to be treated with respect and compensated. And then lastly was classroom management. Once again, conversation would absolutely help, right? But I've always said I'd do it for the kids. But sadly, this year, the kids in the classroom were part of the problem. So they also, the article also says teacher stress has been at record highs with 59% of teachers stating that it is a lot more tense teaching now versus pre-pandemic, according to an April Ed Week research survey. And um, data conducted in February 2021 by the Rand Corporation uh, revealed that stress beat out low pay for main reasons teachers were leaving the classroom with a striking 55% quitting in two school years leading up to the pandemic. In the two school years leading up to the pandemic. So they was quitting before the pandemic. They was quitting before the pandemic. It's crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. And then it goes on to say, well, this is not new. Education Week has written extensively about top reasons teachers are quitting and other contributing factors like the substitute shortage, the rise in school shootings, and get this one, calls to ban books by black authors amid critical race theory debates, and the list goes on. So it's crazy, man. It's crazy, crazy, crazy out here, and teachers are just not having it anymore. Teachers is just not having it anymore, man. They are stressed out, and it's causing a lot of them to quit. But I think the education system itself needs to be overhauled because you have, you know, an education system that was exposed by COVID, by the pandemic, as not being agile and nimble enough to be able to roll with the punches, especially in special education. And so... I think the education system needs to be revamped and needs to fall in a different model. I think the first would be funding. I think teachers should be compensated, and it's just me. You work, go to school, get your degree in education, 
get your senior teacher certification, 85 to 95, out the gate. Right out of college, 85, 95, out the gate. Then as you get to around five years, you should gradually go up and be making six figures at that point. Because it's hard, man. It's hard juggling all that stuff. It's hard dealing with the stress. It's hard. And, you know, the compensation piece, I think is long overdue because I think the teachers should be treated with the same reverence as doctors and lawyers because they're educating those futures and doctors and lawyers and making it possible for them to be doctors and lawyers, right? But there should be a sort of reverence like it was back in the day for teachers. The problem is economy is taken off. Everything around them is going up in salary except for teaching, which is long overdue. So they should compensate them on that. And there should also be enough money in everybody's school budget. Again, I'll say this again, no matter if you or a large school district or a small school district where you have schools that have more than enough or overabundance of resources. So that way, so here's what that means. That's what that means, right? That means that you have two to three teachers per classroom, especially if you got classes over the size of 20. Two to three teachers per classroom Right, where both of the teachers are serving as teacher's aide to, to, to monitor, make sure everything is flowing correctly, doing all those other things, swapping teaching days even, you know, um, where the main teacher is teaching four days out of the week and the teacher's aides are teaching one day out of the week or however they want to manage it, um, doing those things. And then from an IEP special education standpoint, right, there should be no sort of speech therapist. Compensate these people. Compensate the speech therapists, the OP therapists, and all those other therapies and specialties that deal with special education. Compensate them appropriately. And make sure you have plenty enough of them in there. There should be plenty of speech therapists. There should be three to four, depending on the size of the school, enough speech therapists to cover to where each speech therapist can do five students in a session. Or even go one-on-ones if they need to. Well, you have enough, more than enough, to be able to service all the students when it comes to speech. Same thing with OT. Same thing with dedicated aid. Dedicated aid shouldn't be treated as as McDonald's workers. Oh, dedicated aid gets $8 an hour, $10 an hour. They get no benefits. No. 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 Dedicated aid is actually looking after someone's child. And taking someone's child to class and helping someone's child with homework and helping someone's child actually get the material. So should it be full-time employee with getting paid decent money? Yeah, they might not require a dedicated aid to have a formal education, but it wouldn't help. It wouldn't hurt. If you make these things attractive and, and remove the barriers that come with it, stop building so many schools in overpopulated areas where you got trailers out there before you even got the school finished. Provide the resources. Make sure there's plenty of teachers to go around, plenty of, you know, specialists to go around, plenty of co-teachers to go around, plenty of everything to go around. Because these kids only get one shot. They only get one shot of going through K through 12. And I think the education system needs to be ran where we don't teach the test. 
We teach competencies. We teach life skills. We teach all those things that people need to function in life. Now, if you want to be a doctor, yeah, you got to do biology, chemistry, and all that kind of stuff. But if a kid comes and says, I want to be a computer, I remember a commercial <laughs> back in the day used to come on where kids used to say what they wanted to be. And one of them was, <laughs> and the kid couldn't pronounce technician. They say, I want to be a computer technician. But they couldn't say technician. If someone is going to school and their lifelong dream is to be an IT or a computer professional, IT professional, what is chemistry going to teach them? What is biology going to teach them about a CPU, a computer, or a network, right? You know, you may want to may have them require them to take, you know, algebra, maybe calculus, because, you know, when it comes to networking in IT, you got to be able to, you know, do the networking with subnet mask and IP addresses and stuff like that. But other than that, man, revamp the system. Come up with different techniques. Each child with an IEP is different. You know, my thing is this. This country has enough money and resources to that matter because what it really boils down to is money. I mean, I'm not saying teachers are in it for the money. Some teachers, a lot of teachers, I would say the majority of teachers are not in it for the money. But you can't put them under this pressure of short staff and stress and classroom management and not being respected and not compensate them for it to keep up with the rest of the economy, right? You know, inflation is going up. Home prices are not the same as they were back when some of these teachers started teaching. Mortgages have gone up. Rent has gone up. Just daily living has gone up. So give them money for their expertise and well as give them money to be able to live too. You know, I know if I was a teacher... And you paying me $60,000 a year and I got to deal with all these kids and be a psychologist and babysitter and all this other stuff as well as develop lesson plans and teach, right? I'm doing it because I love the kids, but at the same time, I got to live too. And you got to pay me for that expertise. You follow what I'm saying? My thing is this, pay me for the expertise. You know, if you're going to revere doctors and lawyers who treat people and defend people, why can't you compensate the people that make doctors and lawyers or steer people towards being doctors and lawyers, which is teachers, educators, why can't you compensate them for that? Fairly, along the lines, the same lines as lawyers and doctors. They deserve it. They deserve not to be stressed out. They deserve to know that, my, you know, they got four students in their class that have IEPs of 504s. They deserve the resources to be able to address those children, those students, and meet them where they are and develop and operate and put forth that IEP that meets their unique needs. If that's two teachers in there, co-teacher, a teacher and two co-teachers, then so be it. Those two co-teachers, if you got three or four kids or five kids that are inclusion that a special education would include in a general ed class, there should be at least two educators that's working with them in the class, built into the classroom, right? Especially if we want to push inclusion for our special needs kids, students, then put them in a position where they can succeed. Don't just stick them, well, we're going to stick, we're going to stick Joshua in general ed history, right? So he can be included. 
Then you stick him in there by himself. Then he's struggling. And then the main teacher, who was one that probably has 30 other, 29 other kids to deal with, can't address Joshua's needs. Like Joshua needs to have his needs addressed. That's unique to him. But if you got two and three teachers in a classroom, you can take care of the classroom management. You can take care of the resource and source staffing issues, right? And then you pay them well. You take care of, I mean, these five issues that they listed, they can be fixed. You know, if Bill Gates really wanted to do something with the schools instead of coming up with Common Core, put some of those billions toward addressing teachers' shortages. Take some of those billions and put them into the school systems so that they have more than enough special education teachers, more than enough DAs that make a decent wage. They have all those things, plus those teachers are being compensated. You want to do something with your billions, do that. Hell, you can partner with with Tim Cook or you can partner with uh, uh, Steve Jobs' widow. There's a whole bunch of billionaires in this country you can partner with. And look out for the teachers. Look out for the schools and get them the resources. You're going to donate $35 million to USC or $35 million to University of Texas. University of Texas don't need that money. USC don't need that money. But those school districts and those elementary schools and middle schools and high schools that are around USC, they're the ones that need the money. You know? And if you are going to give the colleges, don't give the colleges that's already loaded. Give the colleges that are struggling. Hell, we got a bunch of HBCUs out there that are struggling. Shout out to Mackenzie Bezos and her donations to HBCUs, right? But the teachers need to be compensated. All of them. You know? And if you and you could throw a couple extra coins to the special education teachers, because they don't that's a unique skill set you gotta have to be able to teach and keep engaged children that have IEPs and special needs. So heck, throw them a couple extra coins too. Like I said, the speech therapist, OT therapist, you know? Give these teachers the resource, compensation, and everything they need to do their jobs. Then you won't have articles like this. Right? You won't have articles like this. You know, Lisa Pellegrino, fourth grade teacher here in, here in the great state of Maryland, she said COVID is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So that means if, that's a, if COVID was the straw that broke the camel's back, that means she's seeing the same thing we're all seeing which is the school's the school education system is already broken. My thing is this, there's enough money to, in this country to do it, right? And it says in the article, Pellegrino switched careers and became a teacher seven years ago because she wanted to work with kids and feel like she was making a difference. But in recent years, her class size increased, her district cut funding for a paraeducator support. There you go, paraprofessional, right? Paraeducator, right? For that support, and a promised pay raise was rescinded. She was spending hours after work planning lessons and grading. Pellegrino's anxiety flared up, and she just couldn't sleep at night. So there you go. So there's a teacher right there that's telling you, right there in her example, right? Her class size increased. 
Her district cut the funding for a paraeducator support. So you so you cut the funding for an additional teacher in her classroom while her classroom size increased. And then you didn't get then you didn't pay her like you promised. You didn't get the pay raise. It was rescinded. So now she's spending work after hours after work doing lessons and grading. She doesn't have a life. Right? So her anxiety flared up and she couldn't sleep at night. And I would and I would be willing to willing to bet you that all said and done, you might have some teachers go out on disability for PTSD because of this. I wouldn't be surprised if teachers have already been filing for disability, for PTSD, for these type of conditions, what Lisa Pellegrino has talked about. Right? So, you know, she talked about her school district is resuming in-person instruction. Pellegrino, 55, doesn't qualify for an accommodation to work remotely, but her husband is at a high, is at high risk for COVID complications, COVID-19 complications, COVID-19 complications, and she doesn't feel comfortable going back into the classroom and potentially bringing the virus home to him. So it says instead she's taking a three-month leave through the Family Medical Leave Act because of her anxiety disorder, which is lurking at the prospect of returning to the classroom without what she considers sufficient protections. See, this goes back to the thing where they're not, was it, was it number two, I think it was? They're not being heard. She's telling these people, you know, she's telling these people that, you know, her anxiety's flaring up. She doesn't feel comfortable. Now she's got a husband with a compromised system and she doesn't want to bring back COVID home to her husband and kill him. That's what I'm saying, man. This is this type of stuff, you know. So she's taking a three month FM. She's taking three month FMLA to deal with her anxiety disorder. It's crazy, 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 crazy. She says, as much as I love my students, I'm not going to kill myself over this. I don't mean COVID kill. I mean. They're really working me to death, she said. Frankly, I'd rather be a barista at Starbucks right now than a teacher because at the end of the day, I could walk away from work. Wow, listen to that. Listen to that. This is a teacher, man. This is crazy. This is absolutely nuts. So I'm going to end this podcast on that. My thing is this. Education needs to be revamped. Um blown up and I think started from scratch. You know, it should be blown up and started from scratch. My thing is this, you can't mistake a gun for a taser because of the weight, because of line of sight to see that you pull it up to your line of sight to shoot somebody. You got to see the big yellow. If it's not yellow or orange, well, most tasers are yellow. If it's not yellow, and you can't and you can't tell by the weight, you can definitely see the color. My thing is this police officers there should be a different standard. Qualified immunity should be in place, the Peace Act should be in place, because people are losing their lives because y'all are making mistakes. Whether they're purposeful mistakes or or not purposeful mistakes, people are losing their lives. Dante Wright's not coming back. You understand what I'm saying? He's not coming back. A family's grieving. A family's suffering. Tamir Rice is not coming back. Trayvon's not coming back. Orlando, Sandra, 
say her name, Brianna. They're not coming back. And when you do that, you pretty much can walk scot-free. Which is completely unfair. My thing is this. Juicy Smollier is Dave Chappelle. He got caught red-handed. Again, doesn't make sense to be out in minus 13 degree weather going to Subway and you just happen to be tack- attacked at 2 o'clock in the morning, 1 o'clock in the morning by two guys who hurled racial epithets and gay slurs at you. Really? And then they're the same two guys you were seen or, or supposedly doing drugs with before that. Really? Okay. Okay. Mr. Smoulier. All right, we got it. So my thing is this, man. None of this makes sense. A lot of it is common sense, but none of it really makes sense, right? All right, so what I'm starting to do now is I want to make sure that I um, plug a local business or shout out somebody before I get off these airwaves. So today I'm plugging Watkins General Services. So if you guys are on Instagram, Facebook, I think they're on Instagram and Facebook, Right, check out Watkins General Services. It's my man Keith Watkins and his wife Annette uh, running it. Watkins on Instagram is Watkins General Services eighteen. So they offer small party rentals, roadside assistance for D.C., Prince George, Montgomery, Southern and Northern Virginia, Southern Maryland and Northern Virginia. They're a black-owned business. Their website is www.watkinsgeneralservices.com. Um, they provide a host of uh, a host of services. Like I said, twenty-four-seven emergency roadside assistance, lockouts, and tire changes. And so their mission is as a small family business is designed to deliver a large, impactful experience to your event and to provide a professional and quality service to all. You're in good hands. Like I said, their services include roadside assistance, small party running, uh, small party rentals, light hauling and bulk trash removal, and again, um, they're on Instagram under Watkins General Services eighteen. The telephone number for them is two four zero three nine eight two zero seven eight. You can reach them by email Watkins General Services eighteen, the number eighteen at gmail dot com. So they do good work, man. So check them out. Watkins General Services. My man Keith and Annette Watkins. Shout out to them. And on that note, I'm going to go ahead and shut down this podcast. And I wish you all a blessed week. May the Lord shine his light upon you this week. Answer your prayers. And at the end of this week, that you got praise reports. So shout out to Watkins General Services again. Check them out. Car breakdown. Need to party rentals. Need your bulk trash removed. Watkins General Services. 18 on Instagram. WatkinsGeneralServices.com They're your people to do it. Give them a call. Hit them on Instagram. Go on their website. Big ups to them. Peace and blessings again, my friends, this week. Make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. Make sure you share this podcast with your family, friends, and loved ones. My thing is this. 
Peace. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Be sure to tune in next week. Hit the like and subscribe buttons. And remember, the next time somebody says something suspect, well, tell them my thing is this. Because your opinion matters. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Have a blessed week, and we are out.